So we come to a part in the book of Acts where the act of God is extremely challenging, very confronting. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. I hope I'm not going to put a downer on the service. (laughs) It was certainly a shock to the early church and a wake-up call. But God had his plan, yeah? So let's have a look at this. We start with a beautiful picture of the early church called a sect in that day by the Jews, a sect called the Way. But nevertheless, God's church. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. The whole church in one heart and mind. An incredible picture of unity. One heart, affections. They certainly cared for one another and one mind. There was no heresies. At that time, there were the apostles teaching. And all of those people of whom there were 5,000 men plus probably an equal number of women and children, 10,000 believers in one heart caring for one another and one mind, believing, coming to saving grace, being amazed, in fact, at the story of who Jesus was. In that day, there were no um, people in need. What an amazing thing. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Just look at those words, power, hey? The power of the apostles for preaching and people being converted and for healing and for the grace that was upon the whole church, the power of God's grace. And why were there no people in need? From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Amazing. Amazing. How many people here would think lightly of selling off a block of land or a rental house? But the church loved and cared for one another in such a way that there was no persons in, in need. In approximately 10,000 people, no poverty. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas was a great example to the early church, a man with a great gift of encouragement, so much so that the apostles actually gave him a new name, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He sold a field and brought all the proceeds and to the apostles' feet so that it could be distributed fairly. Barnabas, of course, went on to become a, um, a co-worker, a co-preacher with Paul in the first missionary journey that saw so many churches established. So he was an up-and-coming leader in the church And one of the things that showed his commitment both to God and to the church was his preparedness 
to sell land and give the entire proceeds. So in that climate of love and unity, we get this story. Another man and his wife offered to do the same thing as Barnabas. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you already? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So he didn't fall under conviction. He fell down and he died. What just happened? At the same time that Barnabas comes to the notice of the church and gets given his wonderful new name, brings the entire proceeds of the land to bless the church, so Ananias and Sapphira also decide to sell some land. It says there, together uh, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Actually, nothing wrong with that. As Peter said, it was his land and his money. But the words kept back there in the Greek actually mean to misappropriate or to embezzle, that he actually stole some of that money and kept it for himself. Quite likely what had happened was that he had in fact promised the full amount of the sale to the apostles. Maybe Ananias and his wife got caught up in the moment when Barnabas gave his offering and told the apostles, we also have a piece of land, it's yours. We give it all for the benefit of the church. However it happened, we don't know. But we do know that probably there was a commitment on their part for the full amount to be brought to the church. And then when they brought it, they didn't say it wasn't the full amount. They just kept some for themselves. Somewhere Ananias and Sapphira changed their mind decided they wouldn't give the full amount. What if things went pear-shaped in the church? They'd have a nest egg. We don't know their motives. Ananias does not speak in any of this passage. But we have some idea that Peter knew by the Holy Spirit. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept some of the money for yourself. What was going on in Ananias' heart? In a church experiencing great power and great grace by the Holy Spirit, Peter says, 
Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? We do not know what was going on really in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. But we do know that by the Holy Spirit, Peter says that Satan had actually filled his heart. Reminiscent of the language used of Judas who betrayed Jesus. Furthermore, that word filled is the same word the New Testament uses about being filled by the Holy Spirit. My question is, is it possible to be, have your heart filled with Satan and get carried along with his plan at the same time as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and carried along by the Spirit? Peter goes on. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And afterwards it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? He's giving Ananias an opportunity to be honest. You know, if you're caught out in a lie, what do you do? Do you brazen it out? Do you justify yourself? That way leads to broken relationships. Or do you confess and repent and be restored? Ananias said nothing. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Great fear. The fear of God was the result of his death. God had showed up in judgment. What a scary thing. And unfortunately, we're not done with the bad news yet. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. After three hours later, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, that's the price, she says. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her, buried her beside her husband. And there's that phrase again. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God showed up in the church in power in a way that they had never seen before. In fact, I've read a lot of church history and I'm not sure that I've ever heard a repeat story like that. Possibly there are some. But think, God had the establishment of the kingdom under Jesus Christ in mind. God was looking to the best interests of his church. What would have happened to the church if two people brazenly deceived the church and then had a reputation for being great supporters of the church, true believers? What if those same two people who had deceitfully gained entrance into the church were then put in some form of leadership? 
God knew his heart. This is not a story about money. This is a story about integrity and faith. The result was that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events, as well it may. Um, Quite a few years ago now, when I was living in Adelaide, I used to attend the Charismatic Conference every year. It was a beautiful time of unity in the churches. Towards the end of that 10 years that it ran, there were easily 6,000 plus people at the evening services. One night, Barry Chant, who was the convener, got up and he said, do you realise that there are people from every major denomination here? And so he said, yell out if you're from such and such a church. He went through all the major denominations. Um, Uniting Church, Anglican, Lutheran, Baptist. The worship was awesome. (laughs) The sound is not like anything else I've experienced. I guess some of you will have gone to Hillsong and all different sorts of conventions since that day. But that was my first time of just being together and knowing that people who believed in all different sorts of ways but believed upon Jesus Christ as Lord were coming together. They were in one heart and mind. Not quite the same as the early church. We weren't going out selling pieces of land so that there was no poverty, but definitely that one heart and mind. Do you know, of all the years that I went, there's actually only one message that I remember the content of. And uh, most of the preachers were big-name preachers, and this guy from America, who's actually his name escapes me now, He got up and he said, wherever I go, I always preach one message. Along with anything else that I preach, I preach one message. It is the one message that brings the most blessing to your life and to your faith. I wonder if you know what it was. He said, it's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what came upon the church and the people who heard of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So what is the fear of the Lord and why is it a blessing to us? Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the people fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. The word most closely associated with the fear of the Lord is reverence. We revere God because he is holy and pure. We are in awe of God and worship him as we have this morning because of the beauty of his holiness. But the fear of the Lord is deeper even than reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord comes naturally when we get a glimpse of the power and the majesty of God's standard of holiness. The fear of God is actually respect for who God is. And what God can do. It's a healthy respect, a healthy fear of what God does now in the earth and what he will do when he comes in judgment. Peter, who certainly had an experience of this firsthand, said this. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. You know, heaven is our home. 
We are, in that sense, foreigners here on earth. We're here for a short while. Like the uh, song that we've just sung, Jesus is calling us home with arms out wide. We need to live in reverent fear of God. It's possible to read the story of Ananias and Sapphira and really struggle with God's right to take somebody's life in that way. But who are we to judge God? Far better to settle this question today. God is God and it is God who judges right from wrong. It is God who actually knows right from wrong. And he sets us a standard. Be holy, he says, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You know, we don't actually want a weak, lovey-dovey God that never settles accounts with evil or wickedness. We see a lot of it going on in the world today. Um, I haven't written it on your green slip, but have a look at Psalm 37. It continually contrasts. God is looking out over the world to care for the needy, to watch over the righteous, but also to frustrate the way of the wicked, to bring their own plans against them. If we don't see God judging the way we think he should, or if we don't see God meeting our need as we think he should, we're the ones who know that God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Today is the day of salvation. There is a day set for judgment, but it is not today. Today is the day of salvation. And we who know Jesus have no fear of judgment. No fear of judgment. Because we have one who has taken our judgment for us on the cross and one who will speak for us on that day and say, this one is my faithful servant. (laughs) Nevertheless, today, as we live out this life, we gain great benefit from respecting God for who he is. You know, Let's say you're in a hurry and you're driving down Jubilee Highway. I don't know where any of you live, really. (laughs) And you get to the corner, you want to turn on to Pick Avenue. Coming towards you is a V-double laden with logs, going slower than you are. You're tempted. You think, I actually have room to get around the corner before it. What do you do? Do you pay attention to the fact that that truck is much bigger much heavier and you do not want to see it touch your car (laughs) you do not want it to slam into you you do not want to jackknife it as it puts on the brakes so instead of turning the corner you respect it and you put your foot on the brake and wait that's a healthy fear a healthy respect for what that truck can do to your car Now, if you had taken that option to turn before it, you would have got a great rush of adrenaline. That's fear. It's a fear response. And you may or you may not have made it. But do we take the risk? Do we play loose 
with what God says into our lives? Or do we respect him? Proverbs sets out to teach the wisdom of being righteous and the foolishness of being of choosing wickedness. And it has the most developed theme of the fear of the Lord. I'm just going to look at two verses. Um, I've put most of the rest of them on that green slip for you to reflect on later. Proverbs 16 verse 6, it starts out, Through love and faithfulness sin is atoned for. We know that Adam and Eve did not fear God. They had no respect for him or the one command that he gave them. So they sinned. And Jesus' work of love and faithfulness became necessary. But look at the next part of the verse. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. If we fear God and respect him, we are less likely to be tempted to do what's wrong. Evil is avoided. When we live in reverence and respect for God, we will avoid doing anything against God's standard of goodness and holiness. And Ananias and Sapphira didn't fear the Lord. Or they would have repented when they were given the opportunity. Where we preach grace without respect or reverence and fear of God, we don't do anybody any favours. One more from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's actually common sense to have a healthy respect for anything that can harm you. We teach our kids to drive. We teach them that they are driving lethal weapons. They need to respect the road rules. They need to respect other vehicles. The fear of the Lord is common sense. And it's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of understanding reality. If you don't believe in God... If you don't respect him and if you don't obey him, you are in fact living in an unreality that if you don't turn from, will come to an abrupt end. But look at this. Psalm 147.11 The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Unlike any other fear, fearing God is actually trusting God for who he is, trusting him to be God. He is both a just judge and he's a God of unfailing love. In Isaiah 11, it's prophesied of Jesus, the anointing that will come upon the Messiah. There are seven anointings. And the last one is this. He will be anointed in the power of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus, Son of God, as a man on earth. And I believe that this is true in the Trinity, actually. Respected and feared God and delighted in the goodness that comes of that. When he taught the disciples about the fear of the Lord, he said this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He was speaking in connection with witnessing and the persecution that would come. In our context, 
We don't need to be afraid of those who argue with us or threaten us with rejection. But the disciples had to decide that they were going to preach the gospel even if it meant their lives. He goes on, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the power of judgment, of the judgment that will come against those who don't turn to God for salvation. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows and cares for us so intimately that he can even number the hairs on our head. How many sparrows have you seen in your lifetime? God cares for each one of them. In fact, his entire creation he cares for. So, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. We don't need to be afraid of God in that sense. And we don't need to be afraid of people. We don't need to be afraid for the future. We don't need to be afraid of anything because we're in the hand of a loving, powerful God. So what happened to the church? Twice Luke tells us that the church and others who heard of Ananias and Sapphira experienced great fear. This is what it says. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. In other words, People didn't join the church just to have a look, see what was going on. They didn't join the church to pretend that they were believers and perhaps get the benefit of some of that money that was being distributed to the needy. From this day forward, they joined the church because they believed. They believed in the Lord and were added to the number of the church. Thanks, Sal and team. I'm just going to close in prayer.